वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द रिकंस्ट्रक्शन ऑफ कलर्स विल थिंक अबाउट कलर्स द मीनिंग एंड हाउ दे आर प्रोड्यूस्ड रिसीव्ड परसीव्ड एंड अंडरस्टूड व्हाई डू वी सी कलर्स एट ऑल is colored vision a different kind of vision what is the role played by the mind and what is mind what does the phenomenon of color tell us about the nature of reality itself are nature's messages color coded do green flowers exist is color a quality of matter are pupils and retina themselves colored can any color be reconstructed are there limits to what colors can be made by humans what is the long term future of the colors that we would see and know and will we see more and more we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr sp arun he is a neuroscientist He studies visual perception. He is from ISC in Bangalore. Dr. Mrinal Kaul. He studies pre-modern South Asian philosophy and literature. He is from Manipal Center for Humanities. And Professor Nalin Pant. He is a research chemist for whom the periodic table is the supermarket. He is from IIT Delhi. Nalin why don't we set the ball rolling with you um sure. you know you've thought about the notion of colors and for many years and various kinds of ways what has it come to mean to you do you invariably think of it as having a very physical chemical kind of basis uh, of course there's the sole element of light falling on things and the electromagnetic radiation interacting and so on but if you had to kind of split out the contribution of matter plus radiation or whatever how, how do you think of that interaction and how how much of it is pure physicality uh, the way you see it okay the way i see it is that it is all a matter of pure physicality what i would like for you to appreciate is it is a inherent ability we have unless of course we are color blind to measure the world to measure the world it is a measure of the world particular for, particularly for me as a chemist it is an inborn ability to a certain meaning in the world so i ask you the question why would anybody ever come to a chemist what kind of problems do people expect chemists to solve and the answer is inevitably they put something in front of your face and say what is this and when you want to ask the question of what this is you try to see can i break it up into something smaller like what is it made of what is it made of the first thing you try to do is it's stuffed in your face what is this sure you try to say is it one thing or is it more than one thing you try to break it up now your person so let's just take how piece. simple or complex is it is it a compound of different things and things like that even more simpler you have a white object undefined shape you break it with a hammer are all the white pieces the same or not you right. keep breaking it 
And one of the most elemental ways of figuring out different elements is colors. That is what you get trained when you are a classically trained chemist. It doesn't matter what kind of chemistry you end up doing, but you interrogate the world by trying to see, will it make this color? So color classification is a is It's a, a fundamental property of elements. That's mm-hmm. how you taught. This element will do this color with this thing. Mm-hmm. So give us an example. What do you have in mind? Like, what does it mean for something to be white or blue? So this is something which everybody in school has done. You're given chloride, bromide, iodide, and you dump silver nitrate into it. Mm-hmm. And you get a solid. Mm-hmm. And the color of the solid is different. It's white or gray or yellow. And now you know which is chlorine, which is bromine, which is iodine. That's color. You have identified the world by color. Gold. Gold. I mean, gold doesn't react with anything. You have to have a particular ratio of acids to get gold to do anything at all. Color. Now, the color of gold, the luster of all metals, is actually a surface phenomena. It is not a complementary color. It is because of the plasmons on the surface. It's a totally different reason. All metals have that luster. But more fundamentally, color is a measure of the world, elementally. So you've cut yourself. The color of your blood as it comes out is bright red. But within moments, it starts turning brown. The iron atoms are rusting. All of us have seen the color of rust. Color is elemental. It's telling you. And where where does the coloredness comes from? Does it come from the structure of it, the, the, the conformations of the compound? It doesn't come from the conformations. It comes definitely from the environment the element finds itself in. Mm-hmm. And that does things to the state of the element. Mm-hmm. And what the things it does is it creates different energy levels. And all color is excitation between energy levels. Right, right. With red being what and blue being what, like or violet being what? Different energy levels. So, but, you know, it's a wavelength of light. So remember, whatever you see in color is always what the substance is not Not absorbed. In, not it's taking not absorbed. in. Yeah, no, not it's not absorbing. What is it for you, Arun? I mean, does uh, obviously there's this whole physicality business, which depending on where you lie, you would yeah. subscribe less or more to, but there's certainly a huge element of physicality. Um, but, you know, when it impinges yeah. upon us in some shape or form, let's go to the area so, of visual perception. So the thing is uh, with, um, I mean, what uh, uh, Nalin is referring to is uh, sort of uh, the spectrum of light that is either absorbed or reflected off the material. But um, early sort of uh, philosophers and psychologists, I mean, the earliest sort of uh, people who studied color in that sense, uh, perhaps were artists in the first place because they realized that you could mix. You don't need to have a color palette which is very large. You just keep a couple of colors. You can mix and match. A few colors give you all right? the other so, colors. But people quickly realized that you can actually uh, recreate any color using a combination of some three colors. And so that was the initial idea of this trichromatic theory of color. And so one example is, for example, you could have a, a light that is yellow in color. That could be one wavelength of light. But you could also take red and green wavelengths and mix them in the correct proportion and get yellow. And then there's a fundamental sort of ambiguity when you're looking at a yellow color. Is it really because there are two sources, which is red and green, or is it just one single yellow source? And the, the visual system couldn't care less. It seems to just activate to yellow over. But again, at a chemical, physical level, on this example, mm-hmm. Nalan, when you mix two colors, let's say the artist's colors, royal colors or whatever, and you get a yellow versus the prime, is it the same thing? If you get the exact same hue, the exact same 
color. See, well, there are two ways. Broadly speaking, there's two ways you can mix color. You can do it additively or you can do it subtractively. So Mm. the CMYK is the subtractive way of mixing color and the RGB is the the additive way of of mixing color. So, yes, but rest assured, our brain doesn't give a hoot. No, that's fine. I think which is why we're talking of it at the level of the substance. I just want to go back to one particular thing, you know. The earliest art that we know of are cave paintings. There's no mixing color there. That's right. They just wanted to leave a message. No, that's okay. I think we are... And the, the only color available, so it's either ochre red... Yeah, the pigment, or it's whatever charcoal. pigment It's ochre found. red. It's ochre right. red, the pigment, or it's charcoal. Those mm. are the only two natural colors out there. I think the question is that if Aaron were to give you a yellow a blob of paint, would you be able to say whether two have been mixed to get you that? Or Absolutely. That you would be able to I would, yeah. It's very easy to do. Okay, carry on, Arun. So, there is this whole element of whether... So, yeah, when people sort of realize that as long as you take, uh, if you take, let's say you take two colors and then you try to ask people, you show them a reference color and say, mix these two in whatever proportion you want and get that color. They, they can't always produce that color. Whereas if you have three colors, if one of them is not a mixture of the other two, then that was like a very early experiment showing that there's sort of, there's a threeness to color in some sense. And right? is it you, only RGB or it could be... It could other, be any three colors. It could be any other it, yeah, color. It could be, so in uh, in sort of uh, mathematical sort of formulation, I would say this is like a basis set. So you just need to have three sort of and independent... And combinations get you all And you can those. combine them in whatever or whatever way. And, and that's why, why you have different color spaces like RGB or... Same like here, whatever. And you can create all kinds of color spaces you want. As long and as you're why those three is colors. that the case? I mean, so how does one answer the why question? The why at like one why is very it three? Why is it not five? Why is it right. not two? So at one very basic level, it's because you have three sort of color cones uh, in your eyes, and so they correspond to roughly uh, their peak absorptions in the visible light spectrum is in the blue and the green and the red. And so those three are sort of what give you the fundamental sort of threeness in a way. Just, you, want... you know, so there's an overlap in the absorption maxima. So if you just think of a cone, which is the region yeah. of frequencies or wavelengths where it's absorbed, there's an overlap between red and blue Correct. and green, sure. which is why the mixing is possible. Sure. You know, that there are limits which you can cross without actually impinging on another color domain, which is what allows the mixing to happen. So for another species, yeah. it could be other combinations that yeah, there are uh, that do the there's same thing. plenty of diversity of color vision across uh, creatures. The so. world record is twenty eight. Yeah, that's at least what we've been able to get is twenty eight for the mantis, mantis shrimp. shrimp. Mantis shrimp. It's known experimentally and at the level of the genes being decoded. So yeah. if we go to your world, Minal, and you're going back many centuries, and obviously when philosophers think of things of that sort. Um, you know, many of these other domains like neuroscience and chemistry not made it to the uh, table by that time. So how was this question thought of? And obviously there are auxiliary and ancillary questions of perception and things of that sort and what reality is and this and that. But color per se, um, how, what, what sort of a puzzle has that been and what have philosophers had to say about it? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously philosophers have a, I mean, me, I mean, they have a different take from science, from one point of view. But if you see early nayaikas, uh, that is to say logicians, um, they break it down to basic abstract idea of rupa, for instance, which is this idea of form. Not form is not something like a, a physicality idea there, as in shape, for instance, or a texture, 
because that is not something that resides in idea of of uh, rupa which is this quality um and call every quality has to reside in a substratum so when you say blue or when you see green or red or something um something has to be blue or something has something to has to be so that may, maybe you're seeing the textures maybe you're seeing um you know some some a glass is blue but where is the blueness the blueness is a quality residing in the substratum or the locus that is that glass for instance or so and so forth or uh, the classic example they also give of threads and the cloth uh, in the threads you may not perceive the color but then you have a textured cloth where the color manifests out so where is that where was that color before was it there or or not there or another but, but only blue threads can make a blue cloth right uh, yes that's true as well so um if i give you another example when they discuss the ideas about causality for instance very often quoted example is what they call in sanskrit the mayura andara sanyaya which is this maxim of the egg of a peacock that um, if you see the plasma in the egg you know there is no color at all it's completely absent so when you have a full fully bloomed peacock there where did the color come from um was it there before was it like in the effect was it in the cause and so that remains a problem i mean you know you have these philosophers who would say that cause resides in the effect but there are other philosophers who would say is you know effect is completely a new effect altogether and so on and so forth so the nyayikas that you referred to just now they would be the realist kind of school absolutely the nyayikas are complete realists and maybe more akin towards what um, what scientists would say because for them physicality is is more important real that's where the empirical color comes from yes that's true but even then for instance they they you know color rupa for instance is a is a is a property that uh, is important because what is important is who is cognizing the color uh-huh. this problem that at the cognitive level from many points of view and which which has been this perennial problem between idealists and realists always starting from vedantins and nayayikas and what not is that if you have any entity there which they would call dravya for instance is it going to be there bereft of the fact whether it is cognized or not by who by the knowing subject obviously it becomes there the cognitive or epistemological problem that who is knowing a certain thing so is blue still blue if it is not being known for instance um how do we have the knowledge of blue that is more important for for them or it could be yellow it could be anything or even to see that that distinction bet- between these different colors in terms of just being different qualities so is it that blue and yellow are different qualities two separate qualities altogether or how do you if you put them together do they become like sort of one quality or do, do they generate another quality or how does it work really i'll tell you how it works sorry to jump yeah. in but it's the black and white photograph versus a colored photograph so parse it through that lens the same scene as a monochrome and as a colored so there is something emergent about the color when it is not there something is missing and when you look at the colored image something which was there is suddenly manifest you know so it seems to be at least from that point of view an emergent property as you said i agree totally it doesn't matter whether it's yellow or blue but whatever it is is very necessary for the reality within quotes to emerge right, you know, it's like right. in that sense it's an emergent kind of property 
it's very necessary to get the whole of the experience. Without color, you're missing out on what sometimes can be very vital. But, you know, if for somebody who's not seeing color, uh, obviously that loss is not apparent it's not at all. fatal, but it's absolutely diminished. The lived experience is certainly diminished. And that is, is that a subjective judgment? Uh, it is a subjective judgment, but it's also because of the prescriptive nature of communal living. You know, so it is diminished in the sense that when you want to live in a community, color is a very strong mode of prescriptiveness in communities. And 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 um, Renal, what would the idealists say? Obviously, it feels like I think the realists' position seems a little mm -hmm. bit closer to common sense, or at least a layperson's sense of what yes could or should be like. Yes. Um, now, the idealists obviously are on some other planet and they have another take on this, and not just for colors, but for things in general, reality Absolutely. in general. Absolutely. What is that? I mean, you have, for instance, if you look at the history of, um, you know, what are called these non-dualistic schools, right, from Bhartrahari to Shankara to Abhinava Gupta and whosoever. Um, and there has been this strong tradition of non-dualistic idealism, even Buddhist Vigyanavadins who talk about mind-only school. Um, so everything strong. is one, it's just one Brahman. Well, one Brahman, yes, but in terms of what? This this goes up again back to this um, uh, sort of very strong problem of uh, the knowledge idea that you are knowing a color in form of what? In form of knowledge. So then these problems become subjective, objective problem and who is the subject? Who is the object? What is the relationship between the subject and object? And... Um, say someone like Abhinava Gupta, for instance, or even Shankara from that point of view, that can you really say that there is blue and yellow and white there, bereft of the fact that you are not knowing it? What do you mean by not knowing? Not knowing it in terms of that, say, because their rebuttal is with the realists, and realists would say that whether a certain objective reality is there or is not doesn't really matter. Um, but for idealists, it is it is the cognition is really imposed by the consciousness, which is a very complicated term. I mean, uh, one can speak a lot about idea of consciousness, but one also has to problematize this whole idea that what does it really mean when all of them are talking uh, about this consciousness idea? What does it really mean? But for the idealists, would the idea of color, for example, be only mind dependent? Do they do they totally negate or ignore the object itself? I know the whole world is one and all that, but yes, they do. Hmm. They uh, do f see their their stances work from many points of view. From uh, someone like Shankara, who is defining reality every time through this empirical, illusory, and absolute reality. So coming from absolute point of view, uh, uh, what appears to be is not really what it is. It's an error. So what this whole variegatedness you see is um, in in its kind of differentiated form uh, is that it appears to be. While it from absolute point of view, which is this reality for him as as non-dual idea of Brahman, what you're saying, uh, it it um, it is not. But the so the variegatedness in this room, all these different <laughs> objects with different colors, 
Yes. So, so somebody like Shankara, I mean, so he's obviously saying it at another level. Exactly. He's not saying that the bottle and the pen Absolutely. are not there. Absolutely. Yeah. See, it is to be it it is it is to be looked from many points of view. I think from one one is that uh, we we do not very often differentiate between when we study many of these pre-modern philosophers, writers. When are they using, for instance, a method? When are they using metaphor? When are they using you know these sure. structures and so on and so forth? At one level, the whole epistemological structure is created for this all-knowability idea that Brahman is this pure knowledge idea. Where, uh, when you talk of the differentiated forms, they are just the manifestation of of this one reality, or or to say that the locus of all those differentiated realities which are known through this epistemic act of perception are basically realized manifested or known in a single locus so to say that the cognition of all those differentiated forms is one is one so i don't so just sticking to colors mm-hmm. alone if i notice blue and green and black and whatever mm-hmm. at this point in time mm-hmm. i perceive them all in the same way you mean it in that sense or um uh, let's say the cognition of them is singular. What is the, cognition? The cognition of, say... But what is cognition? What is cognition? Hmm. It's a big question, obviously. Say, how <laughs> simple simple answer in terms of how am I knowing? How am I knowing something? What is cognition for you, Arun? <laughs> oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> D- uh, this mind-dependence business, um, so, how how... Right. Of course, I mean, I, we don't expect you to defend Bhartriyari or Abhinav Gupta or whatever, that's fine. But <laughs> No, but I guess, uh, I mean, I'm just uh, uh, reflecting on what uh, Rinal just said is that I'm thinking that maybe what uh, someone like Shankara would have said is something of the nature like everything contains atoms and quarks or whatever. And then you, I mean, you could be insisting that everything is has a different level of reality altogether, but... That doesn't deny the fact that everything has color, shape, form, and, you know, you perceive things. I mean, I guess most neuroscientists would say that there is an objective reality and you're sort of, um, you are creating some percept of that. So, but Shankara did not say that there is not as much variety as you notice out there. He said there's no variety, it's all one. So, he just shrunk it all to that one point. Now, how how mind-dependent is perception or brain-dependent? You would prefer the word brain, I imagine. Uh, I know Um, they're not the same thing. Rinal would cringe at the notion of (laughs) making the two equivalent. But uh, so it is, is there variability so in I what? guess at a very basic level, I would say that uh, perception is a function of what kind of sensors you have. Like in the case of color, you could be color blind and therefore you would not see Which is the as point much color as... Made. Yeah. Yeah. No, so the thing though is that yeah. there are people who, are, uh, who have only one color cone and it's not like they don't see color. The basic problem is that if you have one color cone, you will confuse intensity and color. So what happens is that you might perceive a particular, your color cone has a sort of absorption spectrum. And so you will maximally respond to colors at a particular uh, wavelength. But there could be another wavelength of color which is brighter than the original preferred wavelength. And that will also be creating the same response in your color cone. So the point of view of sensing the color is actually indistinguishable, those two colors. In other words, a a bright color of a non-preferred or suboptimal wavelength and a you know, a less intense color of the optimal wavelength. So that's what is the ambiguity if you have only one color cone. So people who have, say, for example, only the blue color cone, 
are believed to be perceiving, they, they sort of see a blue and they see a yellow at the very other end of the spectrum. It's not like they don't see color at all, uh, but they, they seem to sort of be able to tell that these are two colors that they see. Whereas uh, people people of two color cones or three color cones actually can distinguish between lots of colors because they can separate out wave the intensity of light from the wavelength in some sense. So the more photoreceptors you have when you go to this mantis shrimp uh, that uh, Nalin right. spoke about, they see, what do they see? Do they see more colors or they see more, what exactly is happening? Because at least in the spectrum that we deal with as human beings, it's kind of one... And is there is it possible to see more in that same spectrum? What exactly happens? Like, what does the so, mantis? The simple answer is they can see more gradations. But just yeah. you know, before I yeah. you know clarify that, I just want to re-emphasize the idea that Arun's putting out, and that what color has is a qualia that can be perceived. I don't think we can escape that. You know, so whether you're an idealist or a realist. What is inescapable is that there is a qualia to color, which is perceivable. Which is it is also highly subjective, therefore. I'm not even beginning to address subjectivity. I'm, I'm insisting now that what makes color so important is that it has a qualia, sure. which is perceivable. And that is undeniable. I don't care where you're coming from. Now, coming back to why is this? So... 28, I have no idea, but you know there are known examples of humans who have four color receptors. Oh, that's so? Mm -hmm. And they are tetrachromic, and they have some amazing abilities, and the test which is done is you essentially give them the same color in different shades, and you give them you know, 28 little tiles, and they have to arrange them in color gradation. And they're able to do it easily. And they're able to do it in a snap. You know, that is... When you have 28, you'd probably be able to do it with 256. So just, it's, is it just more differentiatedness or so it's, it's also more properties or other I mean, kinds with, of things? So I think what uh, sort of vision scientists or I mean, people who are studying vision in different animals would say is that uh, each animal is sort of adapted to some sort of its, environment. its, its own environment and its own visual demands. Mm -hmm. So it could be in the same environment. You might have different demands because you're a predator or a prey or you want to do various kinds of activity with the information you're getting. And so, for, for example, there could be animals where uh, the there's one color receptor dedicated to like some sort of coloring on their, on their other, you know, conspecific, uh, you know, member's body. And so mm -hmm. that's just specialized just for that. I mean, there could be things yeah, like that the, or there could be other more general. Sort of you know, things. because I don't know if you've ever seen an octopus changing color. Yeah. Well, they're the not, masters. Not they, in reality, but yes. Yeah, maybe inside an aquarium. They, you know, the most amazing. So I, I must narrate this experiment to you. So the octopus is in a tank. It's a controlled experiment, and they keep replacing the floor of the tank. So they put a black and white check thing, and the octopus goes black and white check. Then they go to, <laughs> you know, star patterns of red and blue or whatever. An octopus changes thing. That's, okay, great. Yeah, it's a magician's trick. The one that blew my mind was... They put nothing there, and the octopus became transparent. <laughs> that blew my mind. Now, the damn thing is underneath it. How does he know? What are the cues it's getting? And they have to be color-associated cues. Right. And it's an old paper in Nature from the mid-'90s. So when I read literature, you know, I'm more impressed than even the data. I'm just impressed by the guys who think up the experiments, man. That is what really blows my mind. That's what mind. people like Arun do. I mean, things. just 
that is sophisticated knowledge, you know, to design an experiment. There's some amazing experiments, particularly because color is so inherent, you know, to our perception of self. You know, so the elephant you in the room. You already triggered off Minal so, by just using no, the word self. No, I'm saying the elephant in the room, you know, black and white. I mean, look at how it has divided the planet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that is color. Where, where so, is All the more self? Sub- subjective reason, subjective yeah. self, yeah, subjecthood. Is, uh, so it's entirely an adaptive thing? How, 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 how crucial is color? Well, the, so I was going to add... A, a, prey animal for the octopus. So the prey animal needs to be able to figure out whatever trick the octopus has. So the 28 makes sense to me. Yeah. He can suss the octopus out yeah. anytime. You co-evolve. <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I think, uh, I, so there are reports in the literature of uh, people who have lost color vision because of some uh, damage in the brain. And so we don't know exactly if there are color centers in the brain which get damaged, but there's one, there's very rare instances of people who lose color vision because of damage. And then they have the memory of knowing that objects are colored, but they can't see color. And so what they say is that, I mean, they can get around the world just fine. They can function around just fine. It's just that color helps you distinguish objects. uh, Say, for example, you're picking fruit in a tree or something. Then that uh, the case report basically says that that person says it's really difficult to pick berries in a tree because I have to now feel the berries for the shape and so on. Right. So it's it's not just going to jump out at you because it's differently colored. But other than that, surprisingly, uh, you know, for most kinds of vision tasks, you don't need color too much. And it appears separate... that color is useful to segment and what it's called a segmentation. So you, you're able to separate the object from the background better. But otherwise, in terms of just understanding the 3D structure of the world, not really. I mean, that's why black and white films were just as compelling for a long time because we, I mean, we couldn't make color, of course, but you know, you could see a lot of detail in black and white films. So, uh, is just there fine. is there no interplay at all, or is there some interplay with things like motion, shape, texture, and so on? Oh, there is. There is. There is. There is. There is. I mean, what it appears to be is that color sort of. Uh, I mean, it's uh, in the you interpret the what your brain wants to know is the true color of the object. And uh, what always happens is because of variations in the light source during the daytime versus nighttime or uh, early morning, the spectrum of light that is falling on objects is very different. Right. And so the the reflected color from an object is very different from the, I mean, it can be slightly different from the real color of the object. And so what your brain is always trying to figure out is what is the real color of the object. And so a lot of color illusions come about because of that sort of thing. That, um, because your brain is interpreting it in context, you know, so the color illusions right. where you have that's placed right. an object at a higher height, yeah. whether yeah. it is casting a shadow or not, yeah. you just assume. And even yeah. though the colors are the same, right. you will say they're different. So like what, what many neuroscientists would say is that uh, the brain's trying to figure out the real color. And so you might carry some belief or you probably do a lot of inference to figure out the true na- the true sort of... So, for example, if something is in the shadow versus something is lit directly by light, that makes a big difference to the kind of uh, the kind of image you're seeing. So there but is an you want to of... still know what the real property of the object is, independent. And there of is this. a real property associated with it. That's right. right. I think that's <laughs> there what is a qualia to it. <laughs> so there is Correct. an element of memory um, at work. Does uh, it? Yes. Yes. So objects that, uh, even if you take black and white, there's an interesting experiment where uh, they showed subjects a black and white object which has a very 
typical color associated with it and they ask people to adjust the color of a gray spot to match it or something like that so for example if it's a banana then there's a very strong association with yellow and so on so people are when they try to reproduce the color they they imagine the color of the banana and so they adjust the adjust that source of light to match the slightly yellowish or slightly reddish color to an apple or so on so people do there is a memory of course of uh, the color of the object and that does change what i mean can, that can, potentially changes what you even see in the black and white image can any color be made can sure. any color be made nalan or any are color, there colors that are more difficult to make there are why? certainly certain colors that are more difficult to make but just about any perceivable color can be physically made that means you can find a material that will under appropriate circumstances give you that color so but it necessarily is that it is somebody can see the hard question is if you succeed in doing this who's going to tell you that you got it right that's the hard question so my impression was that uh, blue is hard to make if, is that but it's not true? impossible yeah, yeah but no, why but is blue why hard so? to make part of it is simply because the wavelengths are the highest so that means it's well, energetic why is it the highest it's somewhere in the middle of no 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 blue is the extreme end of the spectrum now you're seeing blue light is being reflected off of the thing so you're picking up everything that's being taken in Right. So the reason the sky is blue is not because there's some blue stuff in the sky. Right. That's right. simply because of the scattering of light. Yes. Whereas when you look at blue in your LED on the monitor out there, that is because there is a chemical compound which is being irrigated with light. Some of it is being absorbed, the other stuff is coming out. The ones that's not being absorbed is coming out as a blue LED. But so, the basic problem is any color can be created, but how do you know you've done the correct job? somebody needs to be able to say yes it is what is it about blue is very very difficult color to make why so, so? purple purple was the one that was really really hard mm-hmm. so tyrian purple you know that's why all royals were having purple cloaks oh and synthetic chemistry starts with the gentleman called perkin and gentleman called perkin perkin yeah mm-hmm. and he accidentally made mauve so mauve is purple it's the common man's word for purple <laughs> right and there's a lot of beautiful chemistry about it but what is most beautiful about that is that it unlocked the universe to how color is manifest in structures but the reason it's is that the amount think of it this way the work you have to do to be able to see blue is more than the work you have to do to be able to see red or green it's more energy intensive yeah, in some shape and form and which is the easiest color to make green is actually the predominant color <laughs> on the planet believe it or not and it's just more because that's less... our, no it's a light harvester it's the solar spectrum you know that's how we are all alive we live on the energy from the sun and green is the most pervasive color on the planet no but that's a statement of fact it doesn't say why it is the most pervasive color You no, mean the um, light? How, how does one measure easy or hard? Becomes no, if we were to land up on another planet, mm. would you say for a fact that if there's life there, it'll be like green? It'll be more green than... Like what is it about sun's energy getting captured that somehow makes the planet green? Or or is it just specific to the chemical composition of our... I thought sunlight our... is yellowish, so you should actually have yellow everywhere. I mean, if you want to just harvest energy from the sun, it should be just yellow, right? No, <laughs> no. Not really, because the sun, the solar spectrum. Yeah. So the wavelengths of light, which actually, so what happens in plants is water is split. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you can break water into H plus, OH minus, or you can break it into 
H plus O2 and electrons. That's what plants do. Mm. Everybody else breaks it H plus O, H minus. Plants do it differently, and that's what you use to synthesize carbohydrates. But the greenness of just, that's why you know there are no green flowers, mm. is because a flower's role is reproduction. It's not there as an energy-generating species. And if a flower was green, it just would not stand out from the background. So at least I do not know any green flowers. And people keep trying do to convince me. Do you know green me. flowers? Going back to the perception question, how much of it is split between the eyes and the brain? How much of... I mean, I guess all perception is would be believed to be happening in the brain. But there are certain kinds of processing that happen in the retina, which gives rise to certain illusion. I mean, certain of like certain illusions are believed to happen just because of certain processing in the retina. But perception, if you ask, in, I mean, it's meant to be it's, a neural. It's a, yeah, thing. it would be something that happens in the brain. Don't ask me exactly where it happens, but you know, happens somewhere in the brain. So I think an interesting question, Arun, is if it's measurable, can it be falsified? What is, how does one falsify it? You know, yeah. can we trigger the same thing with a different input? That would be Correct. one method That's right. of falsification. That was exactly the way in which people, as I've said, this three color yeah, theory. You know, so yeah. it's this, I mean, the best way to establish the certainty of something is if you really got it figured out, then you should also know how to falsify yeah, it. Yeah, that's all popular in argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have struggled with that and I have never been able to figure out how do you falsify color? You know, because whatever is being measured is that inherent property of color. Yeah. I, I can't try to figure out. So, you know, there is so there, there's a challenge right now of making the perfect black. There is no perfect black. Because the way you measure a perfect black is you shine a light not, on it. It should not reflect anything. Yeah, you, you won't see your light source on the black. Yes. So you, we are now up at 99.98%. Nine nine eight percent. Right, but it's quite amazing if you actually see the black and you put a light on it. You barely, you have to move the light source to actually see. It's picking up everything. So, my interest in this is that if we can figure out the molecular components that give us that, then we can start. Then you would have created a black hole in a lab. Well, and then we way. can then we can start taking away from that, and then we can see. How much we have taken away to falsify, can you perceive color? Yeah. But we still don't have a perfect black. So it's called, I think, Vanta black. Vanta. The Vanta, V-A-N-T-A. And do you think, um, Renal, going to your domain a little bit, do you think of these in universal terms or particular terms? I mean, is, You is, mean? Yeah, the, the color, colors per se. Well, see, for... for the philosophical problem is, I mean, color basically means nothing at philosophical level. I mean, right. it, it all is broken down to the idea of color is perception, nothing else. So now it becomes... Is this, it a certain kind of perception or you would treat yes, that is, as it having is absolutely, the same status? It is as, pure visual perception alone. It's not in, in all sensory perceptions. For instance, you can't hear color. I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of, for instance, the Naya Ikas. But if visual perception includes all other things you mentioned a while ago, shape and texture and all of that, and color is one of those. Yes, say for instance, if you if you look at a picture, for instance, and you say this is there are different colors. Like say, I see a group picture of my friends, and I see these these different shapes and colors in different shapes and sizes. So when I'm cognizing and saying that this is this and he's this and she's this, am I cognizing the colors or colors in a different shape? 
colors in a different structure, in a different pattern. Or a complex of all of this. Or a complex of all of them. And if you remember, I think in our earlier talk, I gave you this example of the mirror. Right. Uh, these um, all of these philosophers, they use this. At least pre-modern philosophers, they use this this um, analogy of the mirror in in terms of getting to this, getting back to this idea of how the cognition of that differentiate all differentiated forms is unitary. Hmm. So if you if you see a reflected, it it comes together as one. Yes, but yet at the same level, the cognition is one. Yet there is no compromise with the differentiation of it. Yeah. So you do not see the reflected form in the mirror in terms of it's messed up or something. No, uh, ref, uh, mirror in its surface is able to reflect or to say that it is able to reflect within its surface the prototype or to say in philosophical language, it is able to manifest within its surface the prototype as it exactly is. Now, to stretch the example, for instance, how about you have a colored mirror? Mm. Um, mirror also obviously has this property as in mirror used as a metaphor here is that if you have green mirror you will see all differentiated form whether it is blue, yellow, green and so on and so forth because of the unitary property of mirror with that colorness that it has the greenness it's able to reflect within its surface or manifest within its surface everything, all the differentiated forms in prototype as the green and that is the unitary green, if you want to say. But I'm not really speaking here in terms of color because it's it's more of the idea of breaking it down to the perceptorial, visual perceptorial cognition alone. So where's the self in all this, uh, Brinal? The self uh, as, as philosophers refer to it. Right. Self is just the knowing self. I mean... When you have this example, what I, I think I was talking to you earlier in terms of my face and the reflected form of my face. And when my face is being reflected, this is again the analogy very often say Shankara would give or, or Abhinav Gupta would give. Um, when you have the reflected form of my face in a mirror, for instance, my face is not only my face. It also becomes a prototype which is being reflected. Now, in all this, where you have these three entities, which is my face, my face as a prototype in the process of reflection, and then my reflected face in the surface of the mirror, all of them, where do they stand in terms of if they are not being known by the knowing subject? There might be my face, there might be the reflected form, there might be the prototype, and so on and so forth, but they have to be located in a substratum, which is this knowing subject which is the knowing self, who is knowing. Um, now, from philosophical point of view... Uh, so if you were standing in front of a colored mirror mm -hmm. and you see your reflection there, whatever, Pratibhim mm -hmm. and this mm -hmm. and that, um, there is a place where your colored reflection, you and you as a prototype for that colored reflection are together. And that place or locus, as you keep calling it, uh, that place is the self. Um, I don't know whether place is the right word. But. Well, uh, let's say it's knowing subject in terms of philosophically speaking, who is knowing? Because this is a philosophical problem. Right. I mean, in terms right. of we don't come to conclusions. We ask these questions of who is knowing? Hmm. Is it, say, for instance, this whole mind business is again a big problem. I mean, who is the mind? Because um, it, it is not, clearly not something brain idea. It is clearly not something, an activity of brain and so on and so forth. If you see this word manas very often is, you know, when you say uh, 
use the word man or manas you you start touching your bosom or heart or say that oh in in my in my man or something right um but what where is it located what is the what is the ontological status of the mind for them philosophers strictly speaking <laughs> it's it's only a sense it's only a sense um which has a function vis a vis you mean a sense in the sense in which people like neuro neuroscientists yeah more of yes. an idea it doesn't require a physical location so to speak from one point from of view one point. from one point of view say shankara again it's a sense like how touch and sight as a sense i'll give an so, example say shankara yeah. gives you example to understand this three levels of reality because after all the idea is when when even we all of us were talking these questions come fundamentally that oh what is true what is error yes how is it truly blue how is it no it's an illusory appearance of blue right. it's not really blue and so on and so forth so these are theoretical problems at from from philosophical point of view um shankara gives you uh, to explain say for instance this level of reality which is which is um absolute which is illusory and which is empirical now at at one level he compares them to these three states that is to say say empirical is a wakeful state of mind and when you measure something where and... you really are a- able to see things in terms of transaction the samsarika ideas that i see you 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 are different from me and it's not all um, you know subject you from that point of this view this was around in his lab in full wakeful yes, state from one point <laughs> of view <laughs> but there is another level of illusoriness where you cognize the idea of error and the cognition of the idea of error in itself means that oh truth is known because when you cognize an error for instance they give very often the shell and uh, shell and the silver example when you see uh, the lining of a silver on a shell from a distance probably and that time that cognition is a valid cognition because that's how the functionality of that idea that you go there and want to pick that piece of silver up because you think really it's silver and when you go there and you have the replacement of Uh, the knowledge one and the knowledge two that is to say knowledge two now which is manifesting again with respect to your mind with right. respect to your substratum or 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 right. you are the knowing subject nothing is happening to the object i mean whether it is error or truth it, nothing is happening that it is staying as it is but your subjective perception is changing and it is being now the invalidity is being transformed into the valid knowledge right so to use the exa- another this example of what i was saying about wakefulness and then you have the dream state now in dream state what they say in wakefulness you have all your senses all the pancha indriyas five indriyas they are they are functional in the in the dream state what happens only your mind is functional the senses cease to operate i think it makes sense to you nalan it then, does it makes yeah. sense <laughs> to me then there is third state which is this deep sleep state hmm. where even mind stops functioning now they'll have all kinds of these weird discussions that say for instance in a dream state where is the light coming from because you don't have in the wakeful state you can see the light if there is darkness you can't see the objects but how are dreams eliminated when you're no, asleep no but do people dream in color i mean forget do about people dream in color yeah. and people yes they do dream in color exactly. it's established exactly. is it established yes is yeah, it established how do you establish something like that <laughs> like what kind of an experiment design takes care of uh, uh so um uh this is a hard experiment so the obvious thing is first person report so yeah. like if first people will just say i dreamt in color 
But then you could always be saying it because you feel like you're obliged to say it to you other people. You know that whole like, thing of when you wake up, you make up. You, you know, you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the the. Do you I dream mean, in color, Nalan? I actually don't dream don't, at all. Don't dream at all. I have a serious <laughs> problem. <laughs> you dream in color, Aaron? I think I do. Okay, so at um, least at you as a subject and lab subject, you're that. So that's I guess the. the I mean, the experiment would be something like uh, if you were able to repeatedly induce a particular kind of object in the dream in some way, then you could measure some kind of brain activity and say that okay, this is the activity when they actually see the uh, see that object of that color, and then. This is the activity that they are getting when they are when they see the real they say they dreamt about that particular colored object so or whatever. For a neural correlator. So you would look at whether the measurements sort of match up to or consistent with this person describing that particular. I mean, there have been studies of that sort where people are. Um, uh, these are studies where people are made to sleep inside a scanner and then they are woken up at some random time and then they basically to- told to say what were you dreaming about, and so then they go back into the brain data that is continuously being collected. and they try to see whether there are correlates of what the person has said that they were dreaming about and you know there are uh, you know you can I'm get I'm sure these are very tough these are really hard because very, uh, very hard you know because these are as it is brain measurements of non i mean this kind of mri measurements are really the noisy the dreams themselves are messy and then you have messy measurements on top of that and you see not reproducible i mean the whole yeah. sort of the But you can get argument is an experiment should necessarily be reproducible that's one of yeah. the complexities of cognition yeah is it is virtually impossible to get to reproducibility even yeah. if you can measure a neural correlate You, there's no way you can repeat the cognition. No, no. So these are. I mean, it, there are there are ways to do it. I mean, it's these are obviously really hard and noisy sure. measurements to make, but you can actually get to things which are. So you can. I mean, there may be ways to induce certain kinds of things into your dream. If you just saw something before you slept, then chances are that you'll dream about it. I mean, right. there's there's even instances where people have shown that uh, rats that are trained to run in a maze. Actually, replay the activity that they went through when they were actually going through the maze. They replay it sometimes even asleep. forward, sometimes backward. There's all kinds of weird stuff that happens during sleep. So you can actually, if you know the activity during wakefulness, then you can try to potentially re, uh, kind of recapitulate what's happening during the during the dream phases. So But, the dream um, state does have some link to the wakeful state. Well, absolutely. You can't dream without. Uh, without having the wakeful state i mean but but look at this your your question that you posed earlier where is the self the argument is again from philosopher's side is that in all these different states of being is the self same even though obviously in the dream state you know you are body and you're not you know in touch through your senses with the world or in deep sleep state where you do not have even your mind active um but can you deny the fact that they are different selves they are three same sub, the the self with where, capital where, s where would you be on this you as mrinal well i as mrinal i guess obviously i cannot uh, get away with the influence uh, of what i do that is to say many of these philosophers i see my major mandate is to understand why are they talking what they are talking why are they saying what they are saying so again from that point of view i see as um say at least to me from just listening to you it sounds comforting mm-hmm. to imagine that these three different states wakeful mm-hmm. dream like and deep sleep there is somehow a kind of cohesion or convergence into one 
oneself. There's something elegant about it. But uh, which is which is again this idea of you know the substratum which they keep talking about in Sanskrit adhikarana. Where are where are these cells located? And are they are they in mind? Are they in body? And somewhere obviously they are coming back to this idea of consciousness, which uh, which in itself is not defined um, per se. But there are these ways and means trying to problematize it further, saying that oh, it is not this or it is is it that and so on and so forth. These are these are the problems and questions being asked all the time. Are there so, are there visual perception issues that can be thought of uh, at this intersection of dreamlike yeah, and wakeful yeah. state? Uh, which yeah, so. Um, Yes, so when you're trying to understand sort of like brain activity during during dream states, I mean that's so. Like I said, these are hard experiments to make. What people have studied more reproducibly is to do things like comparing brain activity during when you're looking at something versus when you imagine the same thing. Right. Because then you can ask people to voluntarily and repeatedly sort of imagine the same thing, and generally the consensus is that you're activating the same sensory regions. Uh, when you imagine something versus when you actually see it, and the only thing is that the activity, uh, the activation is actually just a little bit weaker. If it was as strong, then it would be a hallucination, and in which case you would actually see the thing that you are imagining. So that's the. I mean, it seems like the difference between imagination and what you are actually seeing is simply a degree of uh, matter of degree, not of not of kind. I mean, it's not like a different. Region is flagging no, but it as it can be probed. I mean, you know, and this so, can be probed. Yeah. So I mean, the magic molecule is something called ibogaine. So I mean, every culture has some kind of shaman who will, you know, take you to your inner self. So we have our bhang and our charas and our afim. Every culture has that. And the amusing thing I find about that is, every culture tells you this is the wrong thing to do, and then in the next paragraph they say this is how it's done. <laughs> Universally, but ibogaine is particularly interesting because it is—it's uh, found in a lot of natural sources. It's an alkaloid, but it's been ritualized by the pygmy people of uh, Congo. And my roommate did his field work there, <laughs> so they're called the Bwiti, and it's—it's it's a rite of initiation, and it essentially allows you to go back into all your cells. But you have to, and so what. I find very interesting is that a there's acknowledgement immediately up front that you have many selves. The, the what are, do you mean by many selves? That you have a child self, you have a father self, you have a son self, you have a brother self. That's how the beauty see it. And to be initiated into manhood, you have to go through this ritual of recognizing your previous selves. And essentially you're tripping. It's a hallucination. And so it's now being used to treat trauma. So the studies are actually happening at Johns Hopkins now. For the first time, controlled studies under medical supervision are taking place. Just started three years ago at Johns Hopkins. And it's being used to see because there's an epidemic of post-traumatic stress disorder in the U.S. And they're trying to see if they can get these people to play out the trauma under the influence of ibogaine. And it's a highly controlled dosage environment, all the help out there. But it's addressing the central issue of, and what I have seen is when you ask people who had ibogaine trips, for the lack of a better word, to describe their experiences, they choose color. 
they, so what happens the the so let's you, say i can't tell you but it's clearly hallucinatory no but what happens to the color perception is it does it does it undergo they're remembering it in color you know they insist that no i need to do this with a green and a purple next to so each you, other so you end up seeing your different selves with different color filters or it's it's i have you know i would love to try again but you know i'm <laughs> still trying to get my hands on it we don't get it in this country but yes You so, use color as a form. My larger point I'm trying to make is that you do use color as a form of identity. But the, could this be an you. emotional marker or something like that? Uh, and what is wrong with that? No, there's nothing it, wrong with it that. It gives you. It is a way to you establish your identity. I think where I'm trying to link it with what you started with, mm. Nalin, is the strong physical basis to things, yes. and you know, there's a world around us, and because of the uh, whatever the chemical composition yeah. in this and that we are seeing different colors in them but you know the you moment you cannot have the moment you take drugs somehow things uh, no, no. seem to change no, i have <laughs> to disagree certain kind of drugs <laughs> no i have to disagree because the notion of color the qualia that can be perceived resides in materiality right okay right we would not be able to imagine a color unless we had seen it seen it, it right? of course and that was what my initial argument was that there is this incredible physicality to color we can manipulate it we can so, make the reds more redder we can make the reds less redder why so because we now understand the measurement of red we know exactly how high you have to excite to get that qualia of red is it manipulable so, so if you had to if if i gave you rights to my brain and whatever and i wanted to just redo my visible spectrum and want to start seeing red as whatever some other color and so on is it straightforward to do uh not straightforward to do because the building blocks are you only 20 amino yeah. acids can can you mess up my brain oh, yes. to for me to start seeing different colors in different colors yes uh yeah i don't know i mean i th- lsd will do it to you <laughs> <laughs> So uh, why does that happen? I think the question is okay. It's a very simple so level. Guess, the same yeah. light impinges upon the object. Yeah, yeah. Certain radiation uh-huh. is absorbed. That's a really interesting question. Uh, why it, does it, it happen? It, 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 yeah. it, it, you know, something gets reflected. It comes and mm-hmm. impinges on my eyes. Now, whether I'm an idealist or a realist, right? I'm so far so, so good. But after that, mm-hmm. depending on whatever some kind of a neural state or whatever. i can i can see different colors so, so i mean i would say that uh, if you are able to manipulate uh, or you know change neural activity you know if you looking at something and you sort of perturb neural activity through some other you introduce some electrical stimulation or something things of that sort have been done for other kinds of stimuli and you you, you can bias your perception in systematic ways by depending on where you uh, stimulate the brain so that's possible so i would believe that uh, if you if you stimulate the right regions you could potentially bias your uh, percept of color the only thing is that you may the reason i'm saying bias is that there's no one very centralized nucleus so in the brain like that there's one dial that you yeah, need so to like you can't just go and zap that yeah so you you can typically bias it because if you have a really ambiguous kind of stimulus you can bias it towards seeing more red by stimulating some of the red uh, you know red responsive neurons think things of that sort no, but, but with uh, the ibogaine in general you know yeah. with the ibogaine experiment so there have been yeah, very elementary stuff but what they seem to find is that the stimulus is the same but it is now reaching out via different neural circuitry to another part of the brain right so you know 
your color perception, wherever it is localized, is a color perception task. But now what's happened is that the stimuli of color perception is reaching out to a different part of your brain, which is bringing these memories up. But it's a very crude way that this has been established in right now. And it's only been done at the level of, you know, ECGs out there. But it's been picked up. And the thinking is that this is what is happening, that the stimulus is the same, but that identical stimulus, so, you know, yellow light, making you see yellow, is now reaching to another part of your brain, which it typically does not. Other tasks are being performed. No, it's actually physically reaching out to another part of your brain because with this whole Ibogaine experience, you know, your previous life kind of thing, it's bringing it out of you. Out there. So it's also being used to treat people who are terminally ill with cancer. Hmm. I have a thought from what um, Amrinal was saying a bit earlier, this question of the mirror. Um, right. So so probably um, in today's neuroscience, you would say things like, you're always making a measurement of the world. You're not actually seeing the world as such, you're making some measurement and this measurement's basically out of like pixels at different locations. But you still don't know the real nature of things because you're like in the case of color, there's a there's some color of light falling on an object. Then that's reflected off from the object. And so you're not really seeing the true color of the object. And your brain's kind of inferring it out of various kinds of sophisticated things. Would you go to the extent of saying that there's no such thing as true color? It's obviously entirely a perception. No, no, but I mean, I guess I would say that I mean, uh, there is true color, but the problem is that you're always uh, only seeing measurements. You're not right. really seeing the real nature of uh, things. So, Is there a I way would, to see ultraviolet, infrared, like go to the other sides of the visible spectrum? Sure, there are. And I was thinking that, I mean, you can do things like uh, if you had a, if you really had a sensor that was really sensitive to ultraviolet or infrared, you could you could just transform that entire spectrum into like the visible thing. Then as long as you had a one-to-one mapping of that sort, I think... You know, people would learn to see. Well, that's like a compression that exercise. That's a compression exercise. That's you would right. anyway see it as that's violet right. or as red or something. So people have done these experiments. With, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, there's ways of getting visual information to say blind people mm-hmm. by converting the entire thing that you're looking at into like either a pattern that is pre- you know pressed onto your skin or uh, that you play into your ears, and you know uh, and you know you learn to associate those things fairly quickly. So I don't know if you'll actually see it if you were uh, if well, that that's was a kind of synesthesia. So red would up. So red as long as you made a one-to-one mapping between what you see and then some sensation you create on your body or whatever, then I, you would learn the association with it. But I don't know whether you'll see it uh, like you were seeing it before. Well, it corresponds yeah. to the act of seeing. Yeah. So I mean, these are all interesting avenues where you could say that the brain might learn to add a kind of soak Whenever in. Whenever you design your mirror experiment, reach out to Mrenal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'll give you some ideas. So what are the open questions, Arun, in this context? What's worth thinking about? I think the one thing that I'm still not clear on, having heard you for a little bit, is whether you think of color um, as as something fundamental uh, mm. in the world or is it is it something which is like a good to have thing so i i i mean i'm not i i'm myself and not completely uh, certain about it but um, it looks like it's something that's good to have not so for example um, i think the other way to pose that question maybe which is slightly more provocative is that does do colors yeah have a causal effect on the world, right? Does color cause things? No, in your case, 
does it cause things certainly. in the brain does it most certainly does it cause yeah. things in the brain because if it's just an afterthought or an mm-hmm. after effect and some kind yeah. of a residue of a complex mechanism however economical evolution has been and so on then you know it's like a, so i think might take it's a side show yeah. but if yeah. it causes something then you know what maybe it's doing something i think i would say that um, it's a really useful property of materials in the world for sure and but it's so from the point of view of say functioning as an organism in the world about like interpreting the structure of the world or like going about seems like you could do it just fine without having without sensing color i mean there are obvious advantages to it uh, because you can make out uh, things that stand out you know better or uh, you know pick out fruits better and all that but i have the impression that you know as far as the fundamental task of say if you think of the fundamental task of vision as just being able to move about and recognizing the movement, things object recognizing the shape of things you know i don't think you need color very much i mean that's where i would um but obviously it's Maybe a, it's, a, it's a it's a very useful material property i mean like like uh, nalin was just saying i mean there's it tells you all kinds of things about the the, the nature of the material the so it's a useful uh, it's a useful signal to have and you know it's not like i would trade my color vision for anything but uh, <laughs> but no, look at it just know. from an information content point yeah. of view you know i mean the amount of information you can squeeze in in limited bandwidth i challenge you to find me anything better than color you've got your visible spectrum and you can create 16 million hues that's insane amounts of information and that is a teeny tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum which is why we have it you know so in today's world i agree entirely with arun you can be color blind maybe the modern man does But not mean evolutionarily as as... you would not have your genes would have not survived if you did not have color vision we certainly with a lot of animals i mean say uh, this i was trying to read up exactly sure, the sure. thing in you know the literature but the what i've heard is a lot of herbivores carnivores don't have a, they're all dichromatic they're dichromatic correct yeah. they're not they don't see have they don't have very good color vision it's actually the primates and the birds that have color vision yeah. and, so who uh, needs color vision so there are very theories about uh, who needs color vision and one of the theories about why primates and birds have it is because both primates and birds eat fruit and there is such a thing as there's such a thing as ripening that's right and so you got to pick out the ripened fruits and that that's why you have no, red and green toxicity. that's a philosophical problem a ripe fruit no it's also toxicity <laughs> it's not just ripening you know yeah. so there are color codes but when food spoils it you know greenish fungus but there's Correct. no such thing as ripe grass. i mean there's all sorts of right. evolutionary benefits here that's true there's no such thing as there's ripe grass there's no such grass. thing as ripe grass right. so you just see so grass you, you, you go ahead and graze right. it uh, yeah. but there is such a thing as a ripe fruit so yeah. you need to know Yeah. and that's why the color cones uh, corresponding to red and green if you look at those color cones the absorption spectrum is arranged such that you're really sensitive to the transition between red and green yeah i mean right. the wavelength is really close by Very close you look by. at blue and versus so red green yeah. blue is really far away from Wait. red and green so you really packing a lot of i mean your your evolved cones for like really sli- slight differences to to detect slight differences between uh, red and green so if you didn't know so that's one co- theory of why we have color vision i mean why we have trichromatic color vision in the first place so if you didn't know the colors of fruits and you knew, knew the these properties of uh-huh. cones and rods cones yeah. primarily you would be able to say that you know the fruits out there are likely to be of this color you'd start right. and be dead i mean evolutionarily that's the argument you know if you can't distinguish if you eat unripe fruit you get the runs and you die of dehydration <laughs> 
Yeah. And if you eat overripe fruit, you get the runs and you die of dehydration. <laughs> it's only yeah. when you eat ripe fruit that you have a nutritional benefit. Yeah, so in general, yeah, I mean, so a lot of, so herbivores, carnivores, both actually don't have, I mean, they all, they all have two color cones. So there's because not again, very there's good no color. such thing as a ripe deer. So long as you see a deer, you just go for it. <laughs> there's uh, a young deer and an old deer. So you yeah. got to know the shape and form. That's an object recognition that's right. thing. That's right. There's nothing to do with color. The other interesting thing, I mean, is the bit of a sidetrack is that in between predators and prey, so all prey will be typically having like sideways eyes right. and all predators have forward-facing eyes. eyes. Right. And so that's sort of, again, it's a very clear example of visual demands uh, dictating what your eyes are, where your eyes are. So the prey have to figure out where the predator is coming from. They don't care about the 3D, you know, location <laughs> of the predator. They just got to flee from it. But the prey need to really localize and have 3D vision for that. What's an open question for you, Mrinal? What can study or reflection on color uh, teach philosophers? Or is there something interesting there? Um, At functional level, uh, as far as the perceptorial cognition idea is concerned in the in the kind of valid means of cognition idea epistemologically speaking um i think obviously it has a, as as i think nalin was saying it, it has a wonderful functionality uh, it, that goes without saying and you have lots of empirical details about that in our own experience day to day experience yet from another point of view what i'm saying is i think again nalin when he um, you know i was thinking when he said uh, say for instance when you hallucinated um these colors appear in your mind and so and so what is what is their ontological status question for me is what is the ontological status of the color whether it is or is it just i think uh, nalin spoke about emergence a couple of times is it, is i am actually that's a very valid well, question that minal is raising what is the ontological of... status of the color exactly here? particularly because, in a hallucinatory state because there, there is where i think my I mean, he helped me in terms of, say, color in imagination. What is the status of that? And going back to this dream idea, what I was saying some time back, and you asked me this idea of self, say, for instance, in dream state, you you see the variegatedness of colors. What is the status of that? And who is seeing all this variegatedness of colors in terms of, say, in the dream state, you understand that you who is seeing is also of this ideation. Right. Because what when you you are aware of yourself in the dream state because you know that you are watching the dream. It's never that you may not be there, but you are watching the dream. You are there, but you are an ideation. You are made of the same mind modification. So is every object of cognition. So in other words, the subject and object both are made of mind in that dream state. Right. In terms of ideation and so on and so forth. So to further go ahead from there in terms of where does then in terms of maybe only imagination or just a material entity, even if I say only in terms of a quality, an essential perceptual quality that a color is, where is its ontological status? And isn't that a beautiful question, the one you posed a little while ago, was the role of color in imagination? Absolutely. In imagination. In imagination. So all these colors are manifestation of your imagination at the same time. Now, obviously, it's a very complex question in terms of whether your memory is functional there in terms of your mind is bringing in all these ideas invoking from memory. Or is it, say, for instance, recognitive ability? Is that to be considered as a new form of cognition? That's like me seeing you in the morning and me seeing you now. Are you the same realities? Are you the same 
entities is 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 not time playing a role is not space playing a role to say that is it the same blue what i saw in the morning now for instance can it be because then there are all these philosophical problems coming in that what is the status of time what is the status of like space how is this blue different from that blue is there a universal blue idea or is there a particular blue idea are there no communities in the world for instance at a very empirical level talking about um who consider something like more reddish to be blue or more there kind are, of greenish that's exactly are. the point that's there exactly are, the yes, point i'm saying very valid point so the point that nameability and knowability of of the objects of cognition how do we understand them how do we give a certain referentiality and then to understand this whole imagination idea that what is the status so if you asked me this question that what is the what is my take in my biggest problem is what is the ontological status of color vis-a-vis imagination yeah we're going to answer <laughs> it's a tough one but it's, it's a beautiful it's, it's a beautiful question I though it's a i must you know it's never been put so articulately to me i'm going to spend a lot of time thinking about please this please do send send renal so beautifully put i mean but do it philosophically <laughs> that might be beyond me but it's I mean, sometimes you know, it's, it's a problem just need to be stated very well. No, absolutely, that's true. Beautifully, you know, in the imagination, what is the status? No, but what Never. do you mean by what is the status? I don't really get. This okay, question. what I am saying is that, say, you know, from one point of view, this idea, whole idea of imagination, and it's, it's, I, I always have hard time explaining this to students because I spend my, myself a lot of time in trying to understand what, at least, where I am coming from. Um, the objectivity whatever we see around us these are the objective forms of whatever we conceived in our mind in terms is is objective reality reality or is subjective reality reality now what i'm trying to say By is that, that you mean that if you didn't know that there was such a category called table would you be able to recognize well that, that that's one side of the problem what i'm saying if you yeah, if you look yeah. at if you look at this room every little entity that you see every little entity at one point of time has been located in the mind of someone who has designed it and given it an objectified manifested form sure right now it might be a idea of design only sure. like in terms of matter was modified sure, sure. and so and so forth but they are the objectified manifestations of the idea that was conceived by someone at some point of time in one's let's say mind again um, imagination let's imagination, imagination. Yeah. again these are all color come into all this but i but, think we we'll spend some time the, the color again is is this see i i am seeing color as this idea of differentiation color is not something like a mono entity it is the mono entity there is is this cognitive idea that how do you perceive it how do you perceive that differentiated variegatedness and so on and so forth but to be able to cognize blue as blue yellow as yellow and green as green um the that that understanding of the differentiatedness of it is something which is very important yeah and you're saying it's also cultural it's learned well it is learned as well at the same time and there is where i think uh, you know the question that cultural question comes in like if i if you have a yeah. kid you'd say to him or her from the beginning something what we call blue today you tell him from the beginning it's black 
So he or she will just grow up saying that it's black or something. That's trivial. It's, it's yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, that's an example to say that, okay, you know, what are we talking about the names? Are we talking about the properties? But it's essential at the same time, you know, uh, because then we have we have a we have a vision, almost a vision idea of blue being blue. Because when I use the word blue, you have a manifestation of the meaning, if we want Which to say. Which is somehow shared. Yeah. Yeah. What is an open question for you, Nalini? It's, it's the perennial open question. How do I know what I see as red, you see as red? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, uh, it's never going to get resolved. But that is the only question, which is what Nicholas Humphrey is saying red is really about. Is We can measure it, we can parse it, we can beat it to death. But how do we resolve exactly this existential question? How do I know? We have a shared understanding this is blue. But what I really want to know is, are you seeing the same blue I am But seeing? it doesn't need to be the exactly identical blue. I, I think I, so no, long as we no. agree on the zones. No. We, we, is, we should agree on blueness a lot more than the specific hue you know, of blue. Three, two, four, five. This uh, is a line from Gulzar. Please excuse me. Dil bahal to jayega us khayal se. Haal mil gaya tumhara apne haal se. How will we know ki haal mil gaya tumhara? Resonance hai ani. Resonance hai ani. That is... An imponderable, really. It's I don't have any way of knowing how we can even get there. But that is for me the question that is out there. We have a philosopher there, Renal. Um, mm, yeah, I've yes. been able to convert him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> philosophy is too hard. Chemistry is really easy. Philosophy is very hard. You have to struggle with yourself. It's the same with me. I mean, I don't know if I can ever learn any bit of chemistry, for instance. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it. No, it's been a yeah. pleasure having you. Look forward to having you again. Really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.